And I just want to say to you, um, those of you who've got kids, um, allow them to be exposed to what God's doing. You know, don't think that songs are too adult for them because God can speak even to the smallest child. And I, I would say to you, don't be, be very clear about that. And God's eye is on them. And, uh, you know, I need the, oh, I need, need the, like a five, six-year-old child. Whatever does that mean to them? Well, I tell you, it, in the spirit, something can happen in that child's life. And I just saw myself sitting in that meeting with my mum and dad singing that song, I need thee, oh, I need thee. And when we come to the whole concept of God pursuing us, just a little bit of background with my own story. I grew up in a home where my parents were in full-time Christian ministry and there was a revival consciousness in our home. My grandfather was in the William Booth revival, saw hundreds of souls saved and uh, he, he lived with us when I was a small child. He died when I was eight, eight years old and to hear his stories of revival were incredible. On my mother's side, my mother's parents were converted in the Welsh revival and were actually friends with Evan Roberts, who was the main kind of, uh, uh, kind of leader in, in that revival. So I grew up in a home where the Holy Spirit was talked about, revival was talked about, and there was a kind of natural drawing towards that for me. And uh, when I was 12, I started to preach, and uh, I preached through my teen years. And by the time I was 17 or 18, I had a a national ministry in the Salvation Army, preaching sometimes to uh, really big crowds. And uh, I was passionate. I used to preach in the streets, and uh, I'd preach anywhere. Um, But I never, ever saw anybody saved. And this created a great hunger in me. Why am I not seeing people saved? I'm preaching the gospel. I was pretty good at doing it. I could speak it. I could illustrate it. But nobody ever got saved. And so I began to read some great biographies of William Booth, Spurgeon, Wesley. And the one common factor that was running through was the fact that they all had a mighty encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going right back to the early 60s, so I am, I know I'm an old guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going right back to, to the early 60s and you would drive for miles to go to a meeting to hear the Holy Spirit mentioned. You know, there was very little teaching. The Pentecostals were marginalized by the evangelicals and there was a a whole sense of, well, these Pentecostals with their speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy, well, that's, that's all a bit weird. That's out there. But then God began to move by his spirit um, in the UK and Canada. Uh, Canada was very significant in that, in the States, some countries in Europe. And people began to realize that the Holy Spirit was not just, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I believe in the experience of the Holy Spirit. And I began to really seek God. And I'd left school. I was going to go to university to study music. And uh, 
um, I did a gap year. And in that gap year, I had a day off in the middle of the week. And I agreed with God that that day off would be spent seeking for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Not realising that all I had to come and do was to ask and receive. But I was very passionate and uh, I, I didn't have much teaching about it. But I began to spend every Thursday crying to God. And then one Thursday afternoon in my bedroom, I was baptised in the Holy Spirit. It was just like flooded with him. What happened was, the next thing that I did, I ran out from my room. There was a young guy who lived up the street from me who was working in a garage who'd recently been baptised in the Spirit. And the pair of us were out in the street proclaiming the gospel. The village policeman was standing on the corner. He hadn't got a chance. These two wild-eyed teenagers went for him. And that's what the baptism in the Spirit does. And the next time I preached, which was pretty soon after that, made an altar call, 20 people responded. Now, what was the difference? The difference was the anointing, the baptism, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was the encounter. It was the engagement with him. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it's my prayer over this weekend, both this morning and um, tomorrow, that as we meet together, we will encounter the Spirit. So I'd like to teach into that and to launch us into it, just um, one or two verses from Psalm 80. The thing that makes Christianity different from every other world religion is that it is a religion of relationship. It's not about a set of beliefs, although our belief system is, is right, I love theology, I love studying the word of God, I love truth, I love trying to explain it, but in the end it is about a relationship, it's about an encounter with the living God. And this goes right back to when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he gave them this ability to relate with himself, God would walk with Adam in the cool of the day, it was a wonderful relationship, the presence of God was there. There was this experience, there was this relationship. And that has always been God's purpose, God's plan, that we have encounters with him. That it is a moment-by-moment walk. But as we see through the scriptures, that there is both an encounter and, and abiding. And those two things are very, very key in learning how to live in the Holy Spirit. There is the encounter and there is the, the abiding. Now, the book of Psalms is a a great book, and most of the Psalms were written by David, and most were written at a time when the kingdom was being established in the promised land after the promises that uh, God had given to Moses and to Joshua. There was several hundred years, and then David comes on the scene, and the promise that God gave to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread shall be given to you, was not fulfilled until David came along. And it was then that uh, there was this glorious time in the history of Israel when the people would gather at the tabernacle and worship. And there's a whole load of teaching I would love to give you about that, but we haven't got time (laughs) this morning for that. But it was a time when many of the Psalms were written. And so you get this great concept of God and his house and his dwelling. How lovely is your dwelling place, uh, O Lord of hosts. There's a a theme, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
And there would have been a, a manifest, the manifest presence of God as the people gathered to worship. But this particular psalm, Psalm 80, was a psalm that was written much later. And it was written by the Asaphites. Now the Asaphites were descended from Asaph, who was a worship musician with David. So there was David and Asaph and uh, one or two others. And um, right the way through the history of, of Israel after David, there was times of sinning and backsliding and then renewal and revival, then more sinning and backsliding. It was a pretty sorry story, actually. Um, but this particular psalm written by the Asaphites who were real worshippers of God and they were set apart in the temple to worship God with their instruments, their harps and their lyres and, and their choirs and uh, there was a kind of prophetic nature to them in the way that they did that. Um, this psalm is believed to have been written at a time when there had been a, a a time of backsliding and the walls of the uh, the doors of the temple had been closed and uh, the the city was a bit devastated and suddenly these Asaphites begin to put on their priestly garments and begin to worship again and they say this give ear O shepherd of Israel you who lead Joseph like a flock you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. I'll come back to that in a minute. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, now this is the prayer. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now that a prayer occurs three times in the psalm and it's a crying out to God to restore what had been lost. It was a crying out to God for his approval, make your face shine upon us. And it was a crying out to God for his power to be once again manifested which is why he says, the psalmist says, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. What that actually is about is that the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim, one on each side, two angelic figures that were carved on each side of the Ark. And what would happen as the people worshipped, the manifest presence, the glory of God, what is called the Shekinah glory, would come down and hover over the ark. That's why it's sometimes called the ark of his presence. That glory would come down and God would actually be visibly manifested amongst the people. And it's as though that is not happening. They are not living in the presence of God. And so the psalmist cries out, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. In other words, God, restore what has been lost. Come again. Break in. Let us experience your presence. Let's experience the power, the glory, the majesty of mighty God, our Yahweh, the great I Am. This is what this psalmist is crying for. 
Now we see that at various times after that, when there would be more backsliding and then more restoration, that it, it, uh, it really is a devastating story of how the people of God in the end so reject the ways of God that they end up powerless and there's some six, seven hundred years between the end of the Old Testament and Jesus coming. And when Jesus comes, he is the word made flesh, the manifest presence of God, and it says he tabernacled amongst us. So what the Old Testament tabernacle pointed to, what the Old Testament tabernacle with the presence of God was prophetically speaking about was that there would come a point when God himself would break in. And so Jesus comes and he is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate. He is God amongst us. He is God living amongst his people. And he says this temple will be destroyed and he will create this new temple. And it's very interesting in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about the church. He says we are being built into a temple, a habitation of God in the spirit. The Greek word for temple there is the Greek word nios, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the nios was actually the holy of holies. That was where God dwelt. And so what Paul is saying is that what that Old Testament temple pointed to and directed us to was this new temple made up of living stones, people who'd been built together, and what we were to be was the Nios, the Holy of Holies, the place where God actually dwells. Now that's a mind-blowing concept. So we don't go to church. We are the church. We are the temple of God. And we are the place where we should experience the manifest presence of God. And so our expectation should be when we gather week by week, whether it's in a small group, whether it's over a community meal, whether it's in a gathering like this or a massive celebration, our expectation should be that we would meet with God. And when, when I teach worship leaders, which I've done over a number of years, I say to them, when you are thinking about your song list, and I know Joss will have been probably teaching on this, knowing him, when you put together your song list, have that sense, not so much what are we going to sing, but God, how are we going to experience your presence? And so a song list can help to build towards that by feeding us with truth that helps us to experience his presence. Now, it's important when we talk about pursuing his presence that we understand what we mean by that. Okay? God is omnipresent. So, if we pursue him and he's everywhere, what on earth do we mean by that? What's that all about? You know, the psalmist says, if I take the wings of the morning, you're there. If I make my bed in hell... You're there. Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is, you can't. He is everywhere. But there is another stage that I call his realized presence. And that's not theological rocket science. That's when we realize that he's there. 
And that's when we communicate with him. And that's why we sing songs of worship, actually. That's why we do that. Because we realise that he's there and we engage with him. And that's got nothing to do with how we feel. It's got everything to do with the fact that God is there. And as Reese read at the beginning, there is that kind invitation. We can come with confidence into the presence of God through that living way by the blood of Jesus. So we enter into his presence. And uh, it's a strange paradox. We're in his presence. So when I hear people say, Lord, we just come into your presence, I think, well, where on earth have you been then? (laughs) He's there. He's with us. And we need to remember that. But when we realize that he's there, that is a step of faith. It goes beyond our feelings and we just speak it out. So we sing songs. We speak his word. We engage with him. We pray. We communicate with him. But there is a third stage and there will be different degrees of this at different times. And that is what we call his manifest presence. It brooks no argument. God is here. And I don't know if you felt it this morning. There came a point in the worship time when, well, I'm thoroughly engaged. God's here. God's, you know, I'm sensing his manifest presence here. Now, I believe that God wants us to experience his manifest presence more and more and more. And we can't manipulate that. There is no technique to that. But what God is looking for is a willing people who will engage with him and who will be longing for his breakthrough in a big way. And I I believe that the church of Jesus is ready for another revival. I really do. And revival begins in the church. It doesn't begin out there. It begins in the church. In fact, there's an old song that we used to sing hundreds of years ago. Oh, Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. So, heading towards that, I want to try and give you some teaching about the Holy Spirit that will, I hope help you to engage and to build your faith and for your own personal encounters, but also with a view to seeing God's presence break in on his church. So we're going to look at this under three headings, pursuing the truth that makes his presence available. So the psalmist is praying, Lord, break through, restore, make your face shine upon us, pursuing the truth that makes his presence available. I want you to think for a moment of a very kind of formal occasion. Um, Say like the royal wedding in England that we had in May with um, Meghan and um, Harry. Okay, A royal wedding in England is a very, very formal affair. And you have to have the right invitation, you have to sit in the right place, and uh, it's all very, very dignified. Or imagine, say, a school speech day where all the teachers and professors and everything have got their academic gowns on and, you know, and everybody's been trained to do the right thing, sit in the right place. I want you to imagine that for a moment. Okay? <coughs> imagine if in the middle of that, somebody got up and started shouting. I mean, it would be big news. It would be all over Sky News, Fox News, or whatever news you have here. It would, it would be everywhere, wouldn't it? Well, there was an incident in the life of Jesus 
where there was a feast. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted a week, and it was a time when the Jewish people used to celebrate the time when they were in the wilderness living in their tents. That's what a tabernacle is. It's a dwelling place. It's a a tent. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. So when we talk about the tabernacle, that is the dwelling place of God. But tabernacle is just simply another word for a tent, a place to live. So they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. God had told them how to do it in the book of Leviticus. And uh, it was a a time of great celebration, great feasting, great singing. Um, it, It was a really exciting time in the Jewish calendar. And Jewish people still celebrate that today. Well, Jesus and the disciples were going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus holds back and says, well, you guys, you go and celebrate it. And um, um, he's kind of on his own. And the feast goes on. But we get to the last day of the feast and Jesus turns up. Now, as I've said, the Feast of Tabernacles was a very, very exciting festive occasion. But on the last day which is often called the great day of the feast, what would happen would be that the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and he'd take a water pot and he'd fill the water pot with water and he would carry it up um, through the water gate of the temple, up a steep path, and he'd take it into the temple and he would pour out this water over the altar. Now, you don't read that in the Bible, but that's you have to get the kind of Jewish background for that. And he would pour it out over the, uh, over the altar. And what it was, was a prophetic symbol of the whole concept of the river of life, the water, the rain. It was a prophetic symbol of fruitfulness, of abundance, and of harvest. Now, the interesting thing about this part of the feast was that the crowds, hundreds of them, probably thousands of them, would line that pathway and they would be on each side. And as the high priest did that, the whole crowd would be totally quiet. Nobody, that would be a real hush over the place. And as the high priest was doing that, The crowd was quiet. Suddenly, this apparent lunatic shouts at the top of his voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The shock that that would have created would have been incredible. Jesus could have been arrested and stoned or killed just for doing that. Now John, commenting on that, said that Jesus was talking about the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, what Jesus was saying was what this is being prophetically enacted is being fulfilled in me. All the promise of abundance, fruitfulness, all the signs of life that that all represents is all fulfilled in me. It's come to me. 
Look at me. I am the new covenant. I am bringing a new way. You won't have to go up to the water gate anymore. You won't have to go through ceremony anymore. I am bringing new life. I am bringing the life of the Spirit. And John says he was talking about the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now the first thing that I, first major point that I want to make about receiving the Spirit is that we need to understand the glorification of Jesus. What does that actually mean? Well, the glorification of Jesus is the sum total of all the events of Easter, from Palm Sunday, the mocked-up trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. We put all of those things together, and that is the glorification of Jesus. Pivotal to that is the cross. Jesus came to die. Now, this is a principle that we see through the Old Testament, that the altar of sacrifice for the atonement of sin, where blood was poured on the altar and the animal was sacrificed, was always satisfied with the fire consuming the sacrifice. There is no fire before the sacrifice. That's the significance of the story of of Elijah, actually, When the fire came down, it was consuming the sacrifice. All Elijah was doing was fulfilling a priestly ministry that was actually in the warp and woof of the nation anyway. So he was only doing what was naturally spiritual to him as a man of God. So um, it's important that we understand that there is no Pentecost without Calvary. There is no roar of the lion without a bleeding lamb. You look at the book of Revelation, Jesus is called all all sorts of things, you know, he's the the king, he's the Lord God and everything else. But 28 times he is called the Lamb of God, he's called that more than anything. And when Jesus went to Calvary, that was his whole purpose in coming. He came to die. The old kids hymn says, Jesus who lived above the sky came down to be a man and die. That is why he came. He came to die. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing our sin. He was bearing our shame. He was bearing our hurts, our rejections. Not only was he doing that personally, all the evil that is in the cosmos was encapsulated in his physical form on the cross. When he died, he was grappling with all the powers of darkness, all the powers of evil, and as they were focused on him, he won this incredible victory. He was our substitute. He was the lamb slain. And it was in God's plan before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus appropriates this glorious victory on the cross. 
Now, it's very important because in a lot of modern Christian books uh, and so on, you, you get a lot of teaching about things like rejection and fear and anxiety and identity and orphan spirit and uh, all of these negative things that can, condemnation, all of these things that can affect us. And what I'm troubled by very often is that we find ways of ministering into those things when actually the key to deliverance from them is the cross. Jesus took our rejections. Jesus took our fears. He took our anxieties. And when Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed, that's what that means. It's to do not only with our sin, it is to do fundamentally with our sin, but it is to do with our emotional well-being as well. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. And the Hebrew word there means our emotional, psychological, spiritual well-being. Fundamentally, Jesus deals with our sin. Now, this is very, very important that we get this. Because if we are trying to find a way of deliverance through coming to the Holy Spirit or through some kind of spiritual kind of technique or anything else, without first going to the cross, we will never get free. We need to see that Jesus has taken it all. All our shame, all our pain. And you know, so many Christians live with shame, they live with condemnation, and they try all sorts of ways to get out of it. The key is to come to the cross. I just feel to say something about shame. And an incident that happened um, when I was a teenager in the church that I was in, I was in the Salvation Army actually, played in the Salvation Army band, and uh, there was a guy, same age as me, we were great mates, we played cornet in the band, he was a really good player, and um, he got a girlfriend in the church, and he got her pregnant. And it was like, whoa, you know, this was a big, big issue, obviously. You know, two young Christians, he gets her pregnant. And of course, he has to step down from his ministry, and, um, and she has the baby. And they never, ever got through the shame. And... I remember him saying to me, he said, I know God's forgiven us, but the church hasn't. Now, that wasn't actually true, but the shame gave him a perception that it was true. And so we need to understand that that Jesus even takes, he lifts our shame. His death was shameful. I've been drawn back to the cross in my own thinking and understanding in recent days and just so love the fact that Jesus as the Lamb of God has dealt with every shameful thing every bit of condemnation every bit of anxiety every fear but Jesus rose again hallelujah he rose again his victory was on the cross 
His victory was not in the grave. His victory was on the cross. That's where he won the victory. That's where he grappled with the enemy and won. But he rose again. God raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in in us, says Paul. So, yeah, when we become Christians, we're resurrected. But an aspect of the glorification of Christ can easily be missed because the ascension is often a neglected thing. Oh, well, Jesus went back to heaven then. No, the ascension is absolutely vital in understanding the glorification of Jesus because it is the ascension that showed and demonstrated that Jesus' work was fully accomplished. And the psalmist prophetically talks about it. He says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart is not lifted up his soul to vanity or sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Well, who can honestly say that they're that good? Nobody can. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's the king of glory. And so the psalm ends with, with open up the gates that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And as he burst through the portals of heaven, the wings of the angels dipped in royal salute, the father accepting into the throne and saying, well done, son. You did it. And as a result of that, the coronation oil that he gives his son pours out onto some people in an upper room who are praying in their weakness. And they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as a response to the ascended Christ's victory over Satan, all the powers of darkness having accomplished redemption. There is no Pentecost without Calvary. And so, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to go to Calvary first. And that's why the psalmist says, pour out your power that we may be saved. Salvation and power go together. Have a big view of your redemption. Have a big understanding of what Jesus has done for you. And then, That creates fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to come flooding in. So that's what we mean by the glorification of Jesus and why the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And we are now equipped to be like Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, there is an empowering There is an assurance, there is a supernatural dimension that comes to us that lifts us beyond being merely human. We are now not merely human, but people filled with the Spirit. So these these are, in a sense, the, the truths that make his presence available. Now I just want to say a few things about the encounters that make that experiential for us. Now, I've already touched on this. The Holy Spirit was very active before you became a Christian. He was working on you to draw you to himself. Can a man by searching find God? The answer is no. It's not that I found God, it's that he found you. 
So he found me. It's his initiative. Now that's a complex theological issue that you'll have to ask Reese about later. <laughs> but he, he has, he has found us. And so we are what, what the Puritans used to call the effectual call. We are quickened. We're awakened. Something comes alive in us. And we are drawn to repentance and faith. And we are born of the Spirit. But it's not just enough to be born of the Spirit. We can be baptized in the Spirit. Now, on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized, immersed in, flooded with the Holy Spirit. And we see through the book of Acts that there were several other occasions where the Holy Spirit came and fell on people and they were baptized in the Spirit. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, where Philip goes down to Samaria, preaches the gospel, many people get saved, demons cast out, loads of people healed. You'd think, wow, this is seriously charismatic. (laughs) What, What meetings? But it wasn't enough. And so the apostles come up from Jerusalem and lay hands on the new converts and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, he goes to Ananias so that he could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Whether we use the word filled or baptized, it's it's just being flooded with, overwhelmed with, whatever word you want to use. But you may say, well, what about Acts chapter 10 at the household of Cornelius then, when, when Peter was preaching to these Gentile unbelievers, the Spirit comes on them and they start speaking in tongues. What about that? Got you there. Okay, well, what was happening there was that just as Pentecost was an initial outpouring at that point for the Jews, Cornelius, the household of Cornelius, was like a Gentile Pentecost. And it had an initial sense to it of bringing the Spirit and making the Spirit available. Now, this was a major, major step forward in world evangelization and the fulfillment of the new covenant. And so when Paul goes to other places, they are not only saved but filled with the Spirit. If you go to Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when when you believed? And uh, they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. What that means is they hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit was available. They must have heard of the Holy Spirit, that there was a Holy Spirit. What it actually means is they didn't know that he was available. And so Paul leads them to a, a, a genuine conversion experience, baptizes them, lays hands on them, and they start speaking with tongues and prophesying. So they are baptized in the Spirit. Now what we can't do is reduce God to a formula. Okay, It's very important that we understand this. We can't reduce God to a formula. Sometimes people get saved and baptised in the Spirit all in one go. And when that happens, absolutely brilliant. I had a a woman at um, my my church here in Brighton. um, She was on an Alpha course. And uh, it was your your mum, Sam. She she said, I've got this lady on my Alpha table. And she says she wants to be baptised, but I'm not sure. Could you see her with me? So I said, sure. So this lady comes and um, makes small talk. Very, very bright, intelligent woman. She was a journalist 
and um, uh, she was, yeah, she was a really bright person, really liked her straight away. And uh, I said, okay, so why do you want to be baptised? She said, because I want to become a Christian. So I thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> um, this is a bit suspicious. So I said to her, what makes you think being baptised will make you a Christian? So she tried to explain what she thought by that. I said, well, let's go right back. So we went through the gospel, went through repentance, salvation, and she was born again. She repented, spoke out words of repentance, and uh, she was like, wow, you know, I didn't realise that was what it meant to become a Christian. So then, and I've learned to do this when I'm leading people to Christ, um, there are various questions that I'll ask about their background. So I said to her, have you ever been involved in anything occultic? She said, um, oh no, I wouldn't do anything like that. So I said, you sure? She said, yeah. I said, so ever read your horoscope? Oh yeah, yeah, I read my horoscope. So, oh, okay, Um, anything else? She said, well, I do have this kind of spiritual guide who tells me to do things. So I said, um, that's very interesting. <laughs> um, yes, anything else? She said, yeah, I, I do tarot cards. And so I said, did you realize that that was the occult? She'd not realized that that's what the occult is. So um, I said, did you know that God forbids that? That that is a, a, a spirituality that God totally forbids? She said, no, I didn't know that. She said, I just thought Jesus was another spiritual being and so her understanding was a bit limited so I I said to her well look I want if if you're serious about following Jesus you need to renounce all that and ask God to forgive you so she said yeah okay I'll do that so she renounced it and as I prayed for her this demon started speaking out of her mouth she starts wriggling around the floor like a snake and um, things screaming out she gets gloriously delivered and freed. So, great. I said, now you need to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. She said, what's that? So, <laughs> so I explained what the baptism in the Spirit was, laid hands on her. I'd not mentioned tongues, I'd not mentioned prophecy, not mentioned anything like that, just that she could be filled with the Spirit. As I laid hands on her, the Spirit of God came on her, she starts speaking in tongues, and begins to prophesy. I wish it was always as easy as that. I assure you it it isn't. But what I'm saying is you can't reduce God to a formula, okay? It's not like that. He is the Holy Spirit. And you you know, spirit is not easy to get hold of. <laughs> so he he does what he wants to do. But what actually happens inside is that we are flooded with, overwhelmed with the spirit. So that is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And my, as I've said, my own testimony was the difference was not the content of what I preached, but the fact that the content was now empowered with the Spirit. How are we doing for time, Reese? We're about, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I'll just say a couple more things, okay? <laughs> The crisis experiences of the spirit are not just one-offs. We are to learn to live in the good of the spirit. 
And there will be times when the Spirit will come upon us for special things. So there are several occasions in the book of Acts where it says, and Paul filled with the Spirit, and he speaks, and something miraculous happens. One of the first times I ever preached on that verse in John 7 was in a big Anglican church. There was about 500 people there. And for a short time, I was in ministry in an Anglican church. I wasn't an ordained Anglican. There wasn't an ounce of Anglicanism in me, but that's where God had put me. And uh, the vicar used to wear his white robe. Um, I wasn't a proper vicar, but I used to have to wear my black academic gown. And we were a bit like Darth Vader and the Angel Gabriel when we were, <laughs> when we were uh, at, at the front. And the Holy Spirit was beginning to move in this church, but there was a lot of scepticism. And I preached, it was on Pentecost Sunday, I preached on the Sunday night on this verse about receiving the Spirit. And I went out on a limb and I said, God will do today what he did in Bible days, and we can be filled with the Spirit, and we can see healings and miracles, and speak in tongues, and and all of that. And in those days, at the end of the service, you would go to the back of the church and you would shake everybody's hand as they went out and they would say something like nice sermon vicar and that's and that that was the the kind of general thing. Well I go to the back of the church big vestibule, crowds of people and my worst nightmare happens. This guy walks across towards me and collapses on the floor um, and looked down and it was pretty obvious his heart had stopped there was a a doctor there who was very, very sceptical about me and about the Holy Spirit. Very sceptical. And he'd been the mayor of Brighton and um, was very well known in in the city, this doctor. So there's this guy lying out. There's all these people, and I've just told them that God will do what he did in Bible days. So the doctor gets down and does the kind of mouth-to-mouth thing and the heart-pounding and all that, and there's not a flicker of life in this man. He died. There he was on the floor, his lips starting to go blue. And I was shaking like crazy. What, what do I do now? And I just said to the doctor, do you mind if I pray? Now this is when the Holy Spirit comes and takes over. I laid hands on him, and it was, I'll be honest, I, I was scared stiff. Um, And it was a cop-out prayer. And I prayed that he would have life, thinking it might be eternal life. (laughs) So, I was not God's man of faith and power for the hour, I can assure you. But, I sensed the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I laid hands on him, and suddenly his eyes flickered, and he sat upright. And the cardiac ambulance came, took him to the hospital, My wife's father, who was alive then, went to the hospital with him and in the hospital led this man to the Lord. And he lived for another six months. He got a heart condition. He lived for another six months as a Christian. Now that doctor phoned me up that night at midnight. He said, I just want you to know that what I saw today was a miracle. He was dead and he is now alive. And that doctor and I became great friends and I saw an amazing healing in that doctor's life three or four years later. Now, why am I telling you that 
that story. It's because I'm just an ordinary person like you. And we can know the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to move in the miraculous. God wants us to have encounters with him so that we can grow in him and bring heaven to earth. Bring the kingdom. And, you know, we are not going to do it. I believe in apologetics. I believe in explaining things. I love apologetics. I love explaining and arguing and reasoning. But you can't argue against a miracle. You really can't. And I believe God wants his church to be moving in the power of the Spirit. I've made one point of three. Let's just stand.